Someday, the storm will pass. But when it does, investors are likely to find a fundamentally altered political and economic landscape. Coming up on today's podcast, we reset our expectations for 2020. Welcome to Amplified, the podcast channel at the International Business of Federated Hermes, where we discuss the key issues, challenges and trends shaping the investment landscape. I'm Ethan Devitt, Head of Investment Ireland at Federated Hermes. Last December, I was joined by Andrew Jacko Jackson, Head of Fixed Income, Will Pomroy, Lead Engager of the SDG Engagement and Small and Mid-Cap Equities Capabilities, and Bruce Duguid, Head of Stewardship at EOS at Federated Hermes, as we all forecast our outlooks for 2020. Yet we had little sense then of the human tragedy that was to come, or the impact that it has had on our lives, economies and markets. Today, the global coronavirus pandemic is reordering society, from the business and financial landscape to our work and everyday lives. Cities, states and countries are scrambling to slow the spread of the virus, and the choices made today may alter the shape of the world in years to come. In a world of uncertainty, we think it is apt to revisit our forecast for 2020 and hit the reset button. Jacko, Will and Bruce are joining me again in our virtual studio as we reset our expectations for the remainder of the year for fixed income markets, the sustainable development goals and stewardship. Welcome back all. Jacko, let's begin with you and a reminder of what your New Year's resolution was back in December. Well, I hope the markets wake up and, and realise the emperor is not wearing any clothes. I think there are a lot of overvalued uh, assets out there and I think that we need to recognise that $17 trillion of negative yielding assets and 12 years worth of QE is not positive. Everything is not tickety-boo. Uh, there are problems out there. Well, Jacko, I think it's safe to say that the markets did wake up. It may not have been in a, a response to negative yields, uh, nor to the emperor wearing no clothes, but they certainly have woken up. Um, can you give us your view currently on um, fixed income markets and how they've changed since December? Yeah, more than happy to, Ethan, and thank you very much for having me on again. Um, we we definitely didn't know in December what, what was going to happen, and, and uh, I think that uh, the human tragedy outweighs anything that we can say about markets. But we're here to talk about markets, and it's what our listeners are interested in hearing about. I think, you know, reflecting back on what I said in December, my sense was that we were we were pricing in near perfection, despite the fact that there was serious problems with um, the global economy. Uh, I, I reflected then on the number of negative yielding assets and and how it felt almost perverse to have that level of uh, central bank intervention while also seeing all-time highs in the S&P. We've been through a period uh, that none of us have experienced previously um, and probably has never been experienced uh, previously in the history of humanity in that this uh, pandemic is on, on a genuinely global scale and is having an impact on societies, even possibly above and beyond uh, what we saw during previous pandemics. But the economic impact of shutdowns has been tremendous uh, and the economic impact on individuals, on corporates and on, on governments uh, has been tremendous. And I think that that really played out through March and April, the start of April. And we saw that actually markets got into full-on panic territory. There were days in which 
it felt very much like uh, 2008 uh, in terms of the, the way in which markets were reacting. And there was that sudden loss of liquidity, which is normally associated with those periods of incredibly high volatility. Uh, we also saw volatility spike, volatility itself spike, both in terms of realized and in terms of implied. But then we saw huge central bank and government intervention. Huge. And, you know, I think that the level of central bank intervention that we'd seen up until December that I was alerting people to has gone, you know, way, way, way beyond those levels now. Um, what we've seen from the Fed and the ECB and other uh, central banks, as well as the support that we've seen from governments, really does take away that sort of fear within markets that things can get materially worse. But actually, there is still a gap between what's happening in markets and what's happening in underlying economies. I would remind people that um, through this crisis, we've seen almost every company that we track uh, draw on their revolving credit facilities. We've seen almost every company uh, increase their leverage uh, through lending facilities that they have within uh, with governments or with their bank relationships. We've seen employees and individuals being furloughed and therefore having a material impact on their um, cash flow. And we've seen huge rushes of rating actions taking many of the corporates that we follow from investment grade to sub-investment grade or those that were already sub-investment grade further down that investment grade spectrum. And yet we find ourselves roughly halfway back from the lows. Having seen this week another 4 million people claiming unemployment benefit, taking it well well above 20 million in the US, markets were still pretty sanguine yesterday. And that's that's a real challenge. So as much as you know much has changed since last December, I'm still reflective on the of the fact that markets and underlying economies maybe do look like they are inhabiting slightly different universes at the moment. That's interesting. I want to go back to your previous forecast around vulnerability. And I think what you may have indicated that you thought the markets were vulnerable, but the your average consumer felt like things were great. They felt the economy was, was going well. They felt they had perhaps more earning power than before, more spending power. Um, my, my question is whether that vulnerability really mattered when it came to something an, as exogenous shock like this one. I mean, even that the low, the high level of negative interest rates, did that really matter in the end now that we've seen this unprecedented wave of central bank intervention? And I suppose I'm wondering is, do the indicators that we looked at before, such as the level of central bank intervention, the length of, of quantitative easing, um, perhaps the uh, the the, the, the yield curve. We spent a lot of time looking at an inverted yield curve last year and wondering whether that was a harbinger of um, of a coming recession. It turned out that it was, but that was it was purely coincidental, I'd argue. So do you think that we are in a new normal right now, maybe because it's a triage stage, that it's not really about the old indicators, at least not in the near term? I think you're reflecting on really important points there, Ethan. And I think they are absolutely right that you challenge me on those and challenge you know those of us who are of a more bearish tint on those um, but i would point out that you know when i when i think about where markets are on a sort of macro perspective the 
pricing in of perfection isn't something that I say easily. Pricing in of perfection implies that there is nothing that can go wrong. Not just that there is nothing that is going wrong, but there is nothing that can go wrong. And I would suggest of the move wider in credit spreads or move lower in, in equity values, at least one third of that move was to do with us moving back to a realization that actually bad things could occur. Now, again, reiterate, no one knew this bad thing could occur, but other bad things could have occurred too. US-China trade dispute was something that was bubbling through. The last thing that I'll say is actually that there will eventually be a price to pay for this level of central bank intervention and this level of liquidity injection into markets. Now, the price may be a very, very long way away from here. It may be generations away from here. But actually, I wonder whether politicians who've now realized that actually, if anything bad occurs, we can just borrow an infinite amount of money and just push that back into the system, will not realize that that's a, a nice get out of jail card for them. And, you know, there is a moral and economic impact to that in the in the medium term. But for now, you're, you're right. Um, you know, central banks do have near infinite firepower. Um, different central banks will be viewed differently. Uh, you know, is, is the Bank of England quite as strong a... Uh, printer of money as the Fed. Tough to argue with the Fed, but maybe you could argue that um, the Bank of England and debt to GDP ratios in in economies that are are more vulnerable in the US economy might be questioned. These are are deep, uh, long-term questions that will not need to be resolved in anything like the near term. But there are inevitably, I think, consequences of taking the action that that we have. So yeah, you're right. I, I, th- I don't think that you know any any of what I said in December predicted any of this. Other than to say, I didn't think those levels were the right levels. I think you're, we're closer to a more natural level now. Having said that, there is a huge, huge amount of credit risk in markets at the moment, and there's a, a, a there's a credit cycle occurring as we speak. And it's interesting. What is the nature of that credit cycle? Because one of the concepts we're all very familiar with now is flattening of the curve, and that's been discussed in the context of infection. And that's why we essentially have shut down economies in order to flatten the curve of infection to um, reduce the impact on our medical systems. But how about what is the intervention that's occurring now to flatten the curve of corporate pain? We've seen um, pay- payroll protection programs. We've seen small business loans. We've seen uh, seen banks being encouraged to continue to lend. So, how does that? affect your analysis of, say, where the defaults are going to happen? I mean, can you do this analysis right now? We have a flexible credit strategy. Are there parts of that that are simply just not accessible to you because you don't know what the future holds? You never know what the future holds, and there are always challenges. Just the challenges are greater now, um, much greater. In terms of the cones of probability around your, your future expectations are much wider. Absolutely key for you to think about the way in which uh, support will be provided to individuals, the economy and corporates in, in that analysis. You know, the energy sector in particular is one which has come under you know, the double whammy of, of this pandemic hitting at the same time as uh, the supply de- demand dynamic being so ap- acutely awful on, on oil prices. For that energy sector, question mark, will the energy sector get a great, a huge amount of support from the government? And that does make you think very carefully about being too 
underweight or too bearish that sector. But if I think about whether there is a credit cycle occurring, there clearly is. There are defaults occurring, there are bankruptcies occurring, there are uh, companies going into Chapter 11 in the US, and there are individuals who cannot pay uh, their debts. Now, in Europe, we've seen really, really accommodative practice on behalf of governments and banks who've given payment holidays on mortgages of up to 12 months, which is which is unheard of, unprecedented. I think that that is something you have to take into account when you think about eventual losses. But there are, you know, have no doubt, there are companies that are going bankrupt. There are companies that are suffering defaults. And there are people who are going through a severe credit distress. And there are losses occurring. There is no doubt about that. And, and that you don't just have, have to look at the US for that. But you're right, maybe the losses are being spread and that is uh, something that's that's very very positive in terms of the uh, the system's ability to absorb over time means that you don't get that acute turbocharging that we saw in 2008 2009 where we start to see credit losses and then banks become more nervous about lending and therefore they charge more for their lending and they pull back on their lending and then it becomes more difficult for companies to refinance. And then if you're in an extended period, as we were from pretty much 2007, middle of 2007 until 2010, when banks really didn't want to lend, there's a, there's a real possibility that doesn't occur, that actually lending is encouraged by governments and central banks and that we don't see that, that refinancing risk, that liquidity, that solvency risk uh, tripping more corporates over. And before we bring in Will, because I want to talk about the the challenges and perhaps changing nature of engagement during these crisis moments, um, how, how would you say that the importance of ESG integration and engagement has changed within fixed income over the last few months, if at all? It has changed. There's no two ways about it. The, the emphasis on understanding uh, our relationship with corporates has been emphasized uh, through this period. Aaron Hay, who's... Um, our lead engager within the fixed income team has been incredibly busy speaking to corporates about what they're doing on the ESG side. I think um, at its heart, ESG is about long-term sustainable investment and the um, the relationship with our, our corporate borrowers, understanding how they're thinking and assessing whether they are long-term thinkers. Long-term thinkers, by their nature, will have managed their way into this crisis better and will manage their way through this crisis better. But actually, a closer relationship is incredibly invaluable right now. And not least because many of these corporates are corporates and individuals, I should say, are not giving us guidance on what their futures look like because it is incredibly uncertain. So for us to be able to speak to corporates about the quality of their governance, um, what they're focused on, how this crisis is playing out for them um, has has been incredibly valuable. I have no doubt that part of our strong performance through this crisis has been our focus on ESG going in, but our focus on engagement as we've gone through the crisis. Thanks very much, Jacko. I want to bring Will Pomroy into the conversation. Will is our lead engager of SDG engagement and small and mid-cap equities. Last time we spoke, Will, you were focusing on SDG 8, Sustainable Development Goal number 8, decent work and economic growth. Let's remind ourselves of what you said then. Companies clearly have a huge influence over our economic well-being, our, our 
ability to be in or out of poverty, whether that's absolute poverty or, or relative poverty. But frankly, I think there's an increasing recognition that companies have a huge role to play over our physical and emotional well-being too. And that comes to not just to the amount of time we spend with our colleagues, but if we look across markets and the US in particular, where we focused a lot of our attention this year, the statutory rights around paternity and parental leave, for example, around flexible work, around kind of the, the work dynamics and the relationships between employers and employees, clearly that has been evolving in recent years. And with the, the growth of precarious work and the growth of automation, there's a lot of vulnerability out there in the system. Well, well, what a crystal ball you must have had then. I think in terms of some of those issues that you raised in that sum up, um, you, you touched on the um, the mental, um, the, the importance of mental health of um, employees, the importance that companies look after that. You talked about essential workers. All of these now are viscerally known to us and to society. So how are you engaging with companies today? And I suppose I should also ask, do companies have time to listen at the moment? Thanks, Ethan. And I'm as with Jackie, thanks for, for inviting me back. And it's perhaps disappointing, but also encouraging to hear that some of the remarks I made previously have been borne out. Um, I think it's certainly fair to say different companies are grappling with their, their own unique challenges at the moment. And there's no doubt the decisions they make now will in many cases have long run impacts, not least on their corporate reputation, but clearly will have profound impacts on the individuals and the families and communities that are impacted too. Um, so it's clearly a dreadful and a scary time for, for far too many. And I think the pandemic does reinforce that contention that I was making before, that the company does have a responsibility towards their employees that absolutely extends beyond the provision of payment for labour. Job creation and access to employment clearly underpin many of the SDG targets, not least the fact that employment lifts people out of poverty. And last year, it was encouraging to see that global unemployment was falling to pre-crisis or pre-financial crisis levels. Clearly, that's um, taken somewhat of a step back now. And with the UN estimating just this week that one and a half billion workers are, ris- are at risk of having their livelihoods destroyed, I think that's some quite sobering reflections for us all to, to reflect on. In terms of engagement with corporates, absolutely, it's been interesting to see corporates grappling with that disruption. And we, we have long-term relationships with many of those companies that we, we invest in and therefore engage with. So that there has been a difference, a kind of a spectrum of that, that engagement activity. In most cases, we, we've clearly been sensitive to the fact they are they are grappling with some pretty profound disruption at the moment. But clearly, we also want to support them through that crisis where we can and also understand what actions they're taking, in particular, to support their employees. So just a couple of points on that. I think it's um, interesting to, to note you mentioned healthcare and frontline workers. Clearly, this is a period now of enormous and exhausting stress for those those folks. Um, perhaps a, a kind of unfortunate or, or profound point to make is that 2020 is actually the year of the nurse. So their efforts should certainly not go unnoticed, unacknowledged, or indeed, hopefully, unrewarded either. But for those that, those um, workers who are impacted by furloughs or job insecurity more, more broadly, we've been speaking to the companies to understand how they're treating those workers in a, in a sensitive fashion. So what transparency are they giving them around the length of leave that would be necessary? Um, how are they reviewing the benefits and support that's being made available to those workers? And how are they going to be supporting those staff to actually return to work? given the, the, both the insecurities in terms of their confidence in having a job uh, on an ongoing basis, perhaps even just their concern around infection and kind of coming back to a more normal work, working environment. So I think there's lots of um, mixed dynamics that are at play, but absolutely, unfortunately, that this pandemic is really throwing a huge challenge towards the attainment of many of the SDGs, given the, the crucial role that um, private sector employment plays in, in the attainment of that. And I think that's interesting. To what extent 
Um, is there already a set of best practice evolving around how companies should both treat their staff and um, provide for their return to the office if and when that occurs? It seems that there are going to be obviously different protocols around um, maybe perhaps lower capacities, maybe around closing certain communal areas. But do you know, how do companies get to know best practice there and learn from their peers? And will you be assisting with any of that? Um, we'll, we'll certainly be assisting to the, the extent we can, but but I think the, the honest answer is it, it varies, uh, well, firstly by region, but in, in particular also by the type of business and the industry we're talking to. I think that, that need to kind of factor in social distancing to manufacturing lines, for example, is clearly a, a huge challenge to, to many of those um, manufacturers who have had long-run arrangements and have been focusing very heavily for a long period of time about um, maximising efficiencies there. And I think Jacko's point before about those best companies are the ones that managed in and will be and will be already thinking about managing out of the pandemic absolutely rings true. And we see a number of corporates spending a lot of time at the moment talking to and beginning to think about what that return to work situation will look like. And it's quite amazing to see the number of companies actually that are close to full capacity already, despite, um, you know, certainly here, back here in the UK, are still feeling like we're a long way from coming out of this, this dark tunnel. I think one other kind of point to make is, you know, perhaps slightly off piece, but we've been, been engaging with a, a corporate fringe benefits provider in Japan actually over the past couple of years around um, the kind of non-financial non, uh, benefits that are provided and kind of the, the challenges that exist in that, that system around long working hours, mental illness and mental stress that comes from the working culture. I, I think that the point I want to make with reference to that example is I think this pandemic will absolutely accelerate that focus on how employers can betterment the, the, the broader um, mental well-being of their employees and broaden their responsibility. And actually, I think there's going to be a lot of good that will come out of this, although I think that the pain in the short term will be unbearable for many. And we spoke about the other SDGs that you were focusing on um, as part of your engagement plans for 2020. And the UN recently published a report which suggested that every single sustainable development goal was going to be negatively impacted by the outbreak of COVID-19, that there was likely to be um, a significant setback in areas like poverty, hunger, health and well-being, which is obviously inextricably linked to decent work and economic growth. What now in terms of the um, objectives that were set around the SDGs and um, the various goals in place? How do you think we have been set back and how do we recover from this? So I think first and foremost, to, to your point, job losses clearly negatively impact across the board of the SDGs, frankly. And, and I think economic and health inequalities will no doubt be exacerbated by this crisis. Um, while un- unavoidable, I think the challenge is on all of us to try and mitigate that to the extent that we can. Um, I think there are some positive and negatives to come out of the, the pandemic too, though. So perhaps on the, the kind of positive side first, maybe, I think there's, there's a lot of research to suggest, actually, that there's some potential benefits to come out of the, the, the altered working practices. So, for example, I think I saw some research relatively recently that suggested a three-day working from home policy for professional services. So the likes of us, perhaps, on the call, would do, go a great um, step towards aligning emissions in, in the passenger and transport system over the next five years. Similarly, I think changes around kind of localization of supply chains will have a similarly positive impact in terms of um, kind of international freight shipping. And again, will have a huge impact then on emissions reduction. But I think more broadly, I think if we look at some of the, the risks, plastics would be one. I think that you are seeing some pause there in terms of the positive progress that's being made. Although I think that will be a pause rather than a, a reversal of um, that positive trend. I think the consumer preferences have already been set in motion. And I think in the immediacy, I think it's interesting looking at how companies 
are recognising um, what they can do to help address some of social, the society challenges that are right in front of them today. So we talk about packaging and clearly there's been a, a drop in demand for certainly food on the go packaging at the moment. You know, we've, we've got a finished packaging company that we've been engaging with where 40% of their sales are actually in the, the food on the go sector. But instead, they've managed to repurpose some of their equipment in a number of their factories. So repurposing what would otherwise be idle, idle equipment to manufacture, in this case, between four and six million face masks for NHS workers. So I think those companies that, that are being innovated and being imaginative and, and have a clear sense of purpose are actually making sure that they are putting to good use and putting their workers to good use in, in this pandemic, and also therefore being able to, to um, maintain positive momentum on, on a number of other issues post-pandemic, while ensuring they, they're trying to mitigate the impact on individuals' working lives and ensuring that people have some sort of sense of security and purpose during this uncertain time. Last year, you'd mentioned your plans to focus on engaging on the topic of HIV-AIDS. Has that taken somewhat of a backseat now, or is that still the plan with the companies that you were working with there? So we, we certainly, post when we last spoke towards the end of last year, played a role in supporting the, the formation of what has since become the Business Alliance to End AIDS, which was launched at Davos back in January this year. Um, and we certainly still think that business has been and continues to be essential to the AIDS response, from whether that be challenging stigma around HIV or, or indeed just promoting and implementing treatment and prevention programmes. But, but undoubtedly, I think this pandemic has shifted focus and attention somewhat. So while we are pleased to see in particular the, the mining company that we've been engaging with intensively on that agenda adopt some of the, the UN AIDS programme targets, we've probably begun to give greater focus to some of those um, SDG targets and, and goals that are more um, more prominent in person at the moment. I guess one, one obvious example of that would be um, around biodiversity. So I, th- I think while biodiversity was, was intended to be a big focus of the UN during 2020, clearly a lot of those international meetings have been rather disrupted by events. But I think given the, the virus's likely animal origins, we are likely to see an accelerated focus on um, the, the human impact of land use and ecosystem degradation on um, disease spillovers. And I, indeed, I was pleased to speak at the, the US Dairy Industries Conference um, just uh, just recently to talk about their commitment to both being carbon neutral by 2050, but their increasing thought to land use and biodiversity and their intention to set targets in, around that later this year. So I think there's, again, some some positive um, positive points to come out of what has otherwise been a, a rather um, distressing and demoralising time over the last month or two. I, no, I, I would agree with that. I would also say that certainly the focus um, on food security and energy security, I think, has never been more um, heightened than it is right now. So that would perhaps bode well for the, some of the supply chain um, enhancements that you mentioned there. Let's bring in Bruce Duguid, Head of Stewardship at EOS at Federated Hermes. Let's remind ourselves first what you were focusing on back in December. We will continue our work in some really big areas that are, are long-term themes. Um, the biggest, perhaps, is, is climate change, where we've seen increased activism um, in society. Uh, Greta Thunberg, for example, um, raising the, the issue at, at, at a much broader level. Um, and companies really reacting. So uh, quite a few companies now setting net zero carbon goals for 2050 and pledging to align their business model to the Paris goals and the Paris Agreement. So we will continue on that across many different sectors. And it will not only therefore be the traditional areas, oil and gas and mining, energy intensive sectors, but also uh, financial services and the way that they provide the lending to facilitate um, 
both the, uh, the low carbon and the higher carbon activities. Well, Bruce, obviously much has changed in the past few months in terms of the media focus, certainly on the climate change momentum that was so prevalent over um, previous months. How have your focus um, and your engagement activities, how has the focus shifted? And do you think this is a temporary type of triage shift or do you think it's symptomatic of a more long term shift? What are you engaging on with companies today? Well, thank you, Ethan. And our engagement with companies is all about ensuring that they are managing their business responsibly in order to deliver long-term sustainable wealth creation. And so clearly this uh, COVID-19 crisis is a major threat to the performance of companies and possibly their survivability. And so reacting appropriately is critical to achieving that goal of long-term, long-term sustainable value. Um, so it, it has, of course, uh, become an immediate point of engagement for us. It, it wasn't the particular crisis that we were anticipating, but we always had an expectation that companies should have um, operational risk management systems in place that would deal with many of the categories of external risk that could hit them. Um, and this um, infectious disease risk was one of the top 10 risks identified by the World Economic Forum and has been consistently over a number of years. I mean, some of the key issues that we're focusing on with companies are around how they manage the, the immediate response to the crisis. So first of all, their cash management, um, that they do not pay dividends or carry out share buybacks at a time when cash is in limited supply. And then also that they manage their stakeholders uh, very carefully during this time. It's a balance between the short-term pressures on the company and the need to maintain long-term relationships. And as one person put it to me at a, at a roundtable uh, discussing this crisis, um, if a company doesn't have its employees or its customers or its supply chain, then it's no longer a business anymore. And so it really needs to look after those critical stakeholders. Uh, Will has just talked about employees and how important it is to look after their health and mental well-being, but particularly as they return to work, um, that they are protected from the continuing pressures of the virus. Uh, now is a time to see companies looking after their customers and we've seen some uh, very good examples of that uh, managing vulnerable customers for example at supermarkets giving them privileged access at certain times of the day or giving free products to healthcare workers and it's very important to manage suppliers um, not to squeeze the supply chain and put suppliers themselves out of business that then threaten the future of, of the company. And government is proving to be a, a vital stakeholder as well. Um, so that, 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 that will be a key area to focus on. And I suppose has engagement now um, become so much more accepted and more of a norm? I mean, for example, yesterday we announced a milestone for EOS at Federated Hermes that our assets under advice have exceeded the one trillion mark. Now that engagement has become so accepted, do we have uh, perhaps a better seat at the table? Do you feel that corporates now are expecting to engage with their with us in a collaborative way and that we have a perhaps a greater voice than we would have had say a decade ago i think that that is that is right um investor engagement with companies has only increased over the years and companies willingness to listen to that long-term voice is amplified by examples of when these 
types of uh, risk occur. And uh, I think this crisis will give companies an even greater sense of humility that it's difficult to know what the future holds. And it's important to look at some of those risks and also the changing opportunities that that presents. So um, I mentioned climate change as being a key focus uh, before. Um, of course, climate change threatens many different um, risks to a business that could be a little bit like infectious diseases. So we are thinking of events such as extreme weather events, um, where there is a, a crisis in the ability to continue operations, uh, a heat wave, for example, um, or disruption to crop supplies, um, mass migration. These are all things that could seriously disrupt uh, business continuity in future years. Do you find, though, that there are some themes that you will not be pursuing this year simply because there perhaps isn't the, the mind share that um, corporate executives can, can give to it, given how much the coronavirus concerns are now dominating? Well, in the short term, it is important that we show that we are supporting companies through this crisis and that we give them the uh, bandwidth to focus on, on those challenges. Actually, we've seen a, a lot of companies still wishing to discuss the longer term agenda. Um, and that is partly because we have the annual shareholder meeting agenda coming up um, for many companies. It's the season of annual shareholder meetings. And there are resolutions around uh, good corporate governance, um, executive remuneration, and also uh, environmental performance, for example, climate change. And so there has been quite a rich dialogue on some of those issues. But absolutely, um, management need to focus uh, first and foremost on getting through this crisis before they then return to this long-term agenda. And they will, I think, return to realise that there is a need for better risk management, for an improving uh, sense of what their business purpose is and how they then manage um, that through the lens of different stakeholders and also how they look to other similar crises that could occur, such as this coronavirus. I'd like to um, tie this to um, the other participants and see if there's any response, Jacko, say, for example, from a market standpoint. Um, I presume you would welcome this kind of collaborative engagement and encouragement of companies towards more um, employer employee-friendly initiatives and towards more sustainable wealth creation. Do you see that this is all compatible with um, your investment focus? Absolutely. I guess as a, as a credit investor, I'm, I'm always thinking medium and long term anyway. Uh, it's not about you know, dividends for us. It's about long term sustainability, liquidity, solvency. So all of these things resonate with us as investors. Um, they also particularly resonate with our style of investment, which is heavily focused on finding the right individual companies um, and you know, looking at them through that medium to long-term lens of can they refinance their debt in future. And actually, the agenda moving further and further in this direction makes their ability to refinance their debt, if they're not moving on this journey with us, more and more challenging. So it's it definitely feels like it's a virtuous cycle. And, and that's possibly the silver lining that we're seeing from this crisis. Will, would you agree that there is a virtuous cycle at play there? I don't have too much to say. I would entirely entirely echo Bruce's comments before, William, and those of Jacko. I think companies that are engaged with their shareholder base 
would simply find a more receptive shareholder base when they need to either raise capital through the, the debt markets or through the equity markets. So there's, there's absolutely a, a virtuous cycle at play there. On that note, I'm going to wrap up today's episode of Amplified with one final question for you all. Can you give me one big reset that you foresee happening when we emerge from the coronavirus pandemic? Let's start with you, Jacko. What would your reset be now as we sit at the beginning of May? Really, really hard question, Ethan. I'm nervous about being the doom and gloom monger in the room again. Uh, but I probably need to go back to what I said in December and, and possibly hope that there will be a reset about the market's slightly more rational, at least for a while, attitude towards risk and systemic risks in particular. And Bruce reflected on that when he was talking about the, the similarities between uh, the impact in, in its sort of highly correlated nature of this pandemic and climate change. And my hope is that we reset and that we try to account for that risk um, in the way in which we, we judge our investments into markets. Last little bit of that is that I, I think one of the slightly negative consequences of emerging from this crisis is that I think it's highly likely populism grows, not shrinks. And I do think that's a risk for markets. So again, I hope markets will start noticing that um, there is risk out there. And I suppose one, just to push back before moving to, to Will, um, one area I think that's quite different about this crisis, maybe there's a correlation with post 9-11, um, is that our personal, we, we have a great sense of um, risk to our person right now because it is a health risk. Then perhaps it was a terrorism risk. Do you think that because we are every day having to assess a personal risk, that makes market participants better or worse at assessing market risk? That's a really deep and, and great question, Ethan. I think our normal behavior pattern through crises like this is to be fearful and panic. Um, and we've been conditioned over the last 12 years to rapidly move from fear and panic into buying the dip. And that's exactly what happened in the first quarter of 2019 after the sell-off in the last quarter of 2018. But I'm not sensing that desperation not to miss out on the rally uh, this time around. So I think maybe part of that is to do with the fact that people have human stories to tell about the impact of this crisis and that they can't dismiss um, the costs to, to society or of what's already happened. So I think, I think you may be um, touching on something. Yeah, yeah, yes, I think that's right. And Will, moving to you, what would be the reset that you think is going to come out of this crisis? Thanks, Stephen. Um, maybe just two thoughts. One, one slightly bigger, one perhaps more more hopeful to try and avoid being the the usual grump in the room and leave that trophy with, with Jacko. Um, so, so recessions clearly typically exacerbate pre-existing health and economic inequalities, and will no doubt impact most profoundly on the, those most vulnerable in society. Um, I suppose one hopeful piece would be that the employer-employee relationship that I've talked about today and last time will be reorientated and there will be a shift towards a greater recognition amongst more corporates that they have a responsibility towards their employees that extends beyond just that payment for labour. So greater paternalism towards their mental well-being as well as their economic and physical well-being. But perhaps a more hopeful note and perhaps a more practical point 
might be that I think all of us are experiencing the greatest working from home experience at the moment, which is being triggered by this pandemic. I, I hope that perhaps that might have some long lasting impact on on how we all think about business travel, for example. So a, a simple fact that I saw recently was a, a 40% reduction in business travel would help align the, the aviation industry with a, a two degree climate scenario by 2030. That, that feels like a, a pretty pretty practical step and something that I think we can all, all reflect on and all take back into our day-to-day working um, lives when we do get back into the office, hopefully in the not too distant future. And Bruce, can you tell me what you think your one big reset will be that you foresee happening when we emerge from the crisis? One reset I think um, that needs to happen and which we have been talking about a lot in recent years is the adjacent challenge of antimicrobial resistance. And uh, this is a, a major threat to society if we were to lose the ability to have antibiotics in our society it could cause the death of up to 10 million people every year and have a financial impact as great as the financial crisis. And so this is an entirely preventable thing if we can reduce the excessive use of antibiotics in the food supply chain. And so that is an area that I think ought to be given higher profile and we continue to engage with uh, food manufacturers and their supply chains and also the pharma companies on the opportunity to resolve that problem. Just, Just one other thing I'd like to say is that the interesting thing about this particular coronavirus challenge is that the lockdown and the impact that has had on business has been an elective approach by society in order to protect the vulnerable. And I think it shows just how far and fast governments are willing to move to protect their citizens. And as soon as that is realised in terms of climate change, we could see very rapid change in the regulatory and societal landscape around carbon emissions. And that is why businesses need to prepare early, even if they do not foresee those policies coming quite at the pace that they currently think. Well, that's a wonderfully optimistic note to end uh, our, our guests' uh, views on. Um, it does leave it to me um, to have a, a concluding few words and my own personal view. And I'm going to have two resets here, maybe greedily um, claiming the host's privilege to do that. One is it gets back to something that Will said around the way we work. I think just very practically, the way we work is going to change. We have all enjoyed I'm based in Dublin. I very much enjoyed having a video conference facilities and teams. I feel more included with my my colleagues in London that way. And I can't see why meetings won't be held that way all the time, even when a certain body is back in the office. So maybe we we need fewer in-person meetings. Maybe we need meeting space to be converted into something else. Um, We need ways to collaborate, but maybe not in the traditional way. So I think that will certainly be a little bit of a practical reset. On the longer term, though, I, I guess back to the question I asked Jacko about um, the how every day having to assess and recalibrate risk to our person, how that will affect our view on risk. I think this will leave a deep scar on our psyche. I don't know what that will look like um, in five or 10 years, but I do think a certain body of our professional set will be traumatized by this to a degree, and that may affect our desire to take risk going forward. Um, it may That may backfire. There may be a kind of a, a roaring 20s type um, decade after this. But I do think in the um, in the in medium term, we are going to see a hesitance around, uh, around spending and uh, just around um, some risk taking. So thanks very much to our guests, Jacko, Will and Bruce for joining me again today, five months after they set their initial forecast for the year. I'll be back later this month with the third episode of Fundamentals, our equity focused podcast. 
Until then, I'm Ethan Devitt, Head of Investment Ireland at The Firm. Thank you for listening to Amplified. Thank you for listening to the Federated Hermes podcast. If you found it interesting and would like to listen to more podcasts from the International Business of Federated Hermes, please visit our website. Our podcasts are also available to download on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. These podcasts are for informational purposes only, and the views, information or opinions expressed therein are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the company and its employees. Performance should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All performance mentioned is historical. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results and investors may not recover the full amount invested.